Well, we've uh, reached that point in our service where we're going to take up some time to look at God's Word together. Uh, good morning. My name is Tarek George. I'm one of the pastoral staff here at our church. And if you're just joining us this morning, welcome. We've been in a sermon series on Advent looking at what does the gospel mean? Uh, what does it look like to prepare for Christmas in a Christian context? And so uh, we're going to have the reading of the God's Word right now. So if you would, please give your attention to that. Today's reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. What would it take to save the world? If you've been following the news recently, it was about a month ago when the head of the UN World Food Program called on billionaires to do just that. In a recent interview, UN Director David Beasley commented that there are 42 million people worldwide who are currently facing starvation due to climate change, conflict, and the COVID pandemic that has raged over the last two years. And what Beasley said was this, that in that same space of time, the net worth of US billionaires has almost doubled standing at over $5 trillion. In his interview, he cited two of the world's richest men, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, as being part of a viable solution. If someone, someone, like, say, Mr. Elon Musk, were to give just 2% of his fortune, $6 billion, Beasley argued, we could help save the world from famine. Well, this obviously unleashed a Twitter storm on social media, and Elon was quick to retort. If the World Food Program can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. It was a humorous exchange, and viewers praised him for throwing down the gauntlet publicly. Perhaps the UN had spoken too soon. Well, as it turns out, the UN did agree to the terms, and on November 15th, they released a plan for how $6.6 billion could help save the world. Beasley tweeted, the world is on fire. Here's our plan, Elon. We're ready to talk with you and anyone else who is serious about saving lives. You see, the message was loud and clear. And one month later, everyone who witnessed that challenge is waiting to see what will happen next. There are 42 million people who are about to perish. Will you actually help save the world? Will you do what you promised? Will you give what you said you would? Well, curiously, I think this is the same question that we find the Apostle John asking this very morning. Because in our passage today, John identifies that the world is on fire. People are perishing, and it's not from hunger. Rather, it's because of the sin and suffering that affects every human heart and leads us to death. And John here claims that there's life, eternal life at stake, not just for 42 million people, but for every person who has ever lived. 
You see, the Bible promised us something equally newsworthy. In the scriptures, God made a commitment long ago that he was going to do what it takes to save this world. He had a plan to rescue people from death, and it cost a lot more than $6 billion. You see, just like our news article, I think this text puts us at the receiving end of a promise, waiting for its fulfillment. The question John raises for us this morning is this, will God actually help save the world? Will he do what he promised? Will he give what he said he would? And so John invites us this morning to reflect on God's plan to save the world. He asks us to consider two things this morning. First, what God loved, and second, what God gave. What God loved and what God gave. We'll begin by looking at what God loved. Well, the context of this passage is actually pretty important. Uh, Most of us have heard these words from John 3.16 in isolation, but you should know that they belong to a certain narrative. Because in John chapter 3, Jesus is visited by a man named Nicodemus, who is a teacher of the faith. He's a man familiar with the scriptures. He's studied them. He knows them. And he's read all about God's plan and promises to save his people. And it's interesting. He recognizes that Jesus perhaps has some spiritual insight on the subject. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's basically saying, if you've come from God as you say, tell me plainly, how is this all going to play out? What's going to happen? And what happens is that they begin to converse about how a person can be saved. Nicodemus understands that people are dead in their sins and he's waiting for God to do something. The world needs saving and he wants to know what's the plan. Is God going to come through for us? And if so, what's it going to cost? And in response to him, Jesus tells him these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In one verse, Jesus gives us perhaps the most succinct and celebrated declaration of the gospel in history. The plan to save the world centers on God's love. Now pause there for a moment. Before we go any further, I think it's worth acknowledging that wherever you are in your journey of faith, this passage conjures up something in your heart. Some of you have heard this passage from an early age. It's been taught to you, drilled into you, And now, if you're really honest, you're kind of over it. It feels stale, conservative, and outdated. I know that when you hear this passage read, you don't encounter a God of love at all. Instead, what you hear is some Christian jargon, a tired, worn-out, evangelistic message that no longer feels sophisticated to our culture or winsome to you. Am I right? Others of you, I think, are different. You've seen this verse, John 3.16, in some pretty unusual places. You've watched Christians carry around placards with this verse out on city streets, outside abortion clinics, and at LGBTQ rallies. People carrying them seem kind of vindictive, and you've heard them say some hurtful things. You've wondered, I think, why God, who really loves the world, has followers who don't appear to do the same. Words that were meant to be quote-unquote hopeful have only ever come across to you as being hurtful. Am I right? 
You see, whether you grew up in the church or outside of it, I think you and I have learned something culturally from our reading and hearing of this passage that God wants us to unlearn this morning. Because this gospel message is not stale or outdated and it's not vindictive or smug. It is beautiful and brimming with love. I want to invite you, wherever you are this morning, to read this passage with me afresh, as if maybe you were considering it for the very first time. Tell me, what jumps out to you from this text? It's the very beginning, isn't it? Notice, first and foremost, that God's plan of salvation is prompted by an act of love. God is not driven by some sense of moral obligation or duty. Love is what compels him to act. The Bible is consistent in teaching that God is love, unconditional, unadulterated love. It is his very essence. Now, you and I can't fully appreciate that because, well, love is not our essence. Our view of love is so constrained that we can only express it in relation to something else. I love this or I have a love for that. You and I love things and we love people and we love experiences. Love is something we do, but it's not at the heart of who we are. How do I know that? Well, if it were, we should have no problem loving our enemies, or loving people who disagree with us or who are different from us. We should be able to love those who are vaccinated while also loving those who are not. We should be able to love a person of color without vilifying a Caucasian. We should have the freedom to dialogue about our religious and secular convictions without being bullied by a so-called tolerant, loving society. You don't have to look too far in our culture to see that this isn't the case. You and I love people and values consistent with our own convictions. We love discriminatively. And God is not like that. Love is purely who he is. And it is his character, his character at the very root of his being that leads him to want to direct his love in a particular way. Jesus tells us that God loves the world. Now, the word John uses here to describe the world is this Greek word cosmos. God loves the cosmos. And on the surface, that might sound kind of flowery, but I assure you, there couldn't be further from the truth. If you look carefully through John's gospel at how this word is used, you'll notice that this word is actually pretty negative, actually. The word in view here is not geographic. This is not a geographic world. It's not a location or a place. Rather, the world as it's defined here is this body of people, this entity that is consistently in opposition to God. It is a world that does not have love at its core. In fact, John concludes in verse 19 that this is the judgment or the verdict. The world is plunged in darkness. This is the world. It is a world filled with sin and suffering, and it is perishing. It needs saving. And you and I are part of this world. We inhabit this darkness. That might sound like a strong claim, but I think a cursory look at the headlines will tell you that our world is not sunshine and rainbows. It's not. There's massive inequality, injustice, and unrest happening all across the globe, and especially even in our city. I don't think we think about it often, though, because we live in a society that is generally lawful. We have ways of distracting ourselves from confronting this darkness. But every now and then, I think you and I begin to see the cracks. I remember several months ago when my wife and I took an Uber ride uptown for a dinner date. 
Our driver was a gentleman from Somalia with a kind appearance and a friendly tone. And as we drove, uh, we got talking about our lives, each of our families, and what we do. He mentioned just casually, offhandedly, that he thought we were nice people, and that he doesn't often meet nice people while driving. Prompted me to ask the question, what, what kinds of people do you meet while driving? I was trying to make casual conversation, you understand, but I had no idea the landmine that I had just stepped in. Over the next 30 minutes, this man told us stories of how his car had seen everything from vomit to vandalism. He said that late-night parties and clients were the worst, and we laughed at some of his customers. Then it got really dark. He told us appalling stories of how he had been harassed for being a driver, racially slurred for being Somalian, and physically assaulted for being black. He told us how people had offered him money to carry drugs, shuttle girls, and perform sexual favors for strangers. It was distressing for him to talk about and appalling for us to hear. We listened for half an hour, utterly stunned at the kinds of people in our city and the things that they get up to. All of them, he said, were not the kinds of people you would expect. These were successful lawyers, teachers, and business people, who, people who from all appearances looked extremely kind and courteous, generous, hardworking, and ordinary on the surface. I tell you, the things that this man saw and described to us was enough to make me want to leave the city. This is not the Toronto that we had known. What he described to us was pure darkness. I remember pulling up to our destination and trying my best to end our conversation on our lighter, more hopeful note. It sounds like all the crazy people have just come out after dark, huh? I said. I'll never forget his response. He said, no, I think the world is dark. I have found that the night just shows people as they truly are. Men and women, I need to tell you that this man left a darkness in Somalia to come build a better life here for his family, and he was surprised to find that Toronto had a darkness of its own. I have to tell you that it's not just his country, and it's not just our city, it's the world that we live in. This is the point that John is making. The world is in darkness. It is filled with selfishness, sin, and suffering. In fact, this is a world that hates God and wants nothing to do with him, and it shows. It really, really shows. This is a world that sees God as the enemy rather than a lover, and Jesus is saying, God loves this world, this world. Can I just say, I think some of us have been Christian for so long that we've stopped being amazed by that fact. I think you and I read our Bibles far too casually. I do. Do you understand how much love it takes to love the world? I mean, really, you have to ask, how is it that this God can look out of this world at the swath of human history and feel anything but disappointment, anger, and rage? Wouldn't you? How could you love what you see? How does he do it? How does he do it? How does he love the Taliban or the Nazi, the KKK or ISIS? How can he stomach the pedophile or the murderer, the rapist or the thief? How can he love the bigot or the racist, the tyrant or the pimp, the corrupt politician, the crooked judge, and even the lecherous priest? 
I don't think you understand how outrageous it is that God should love the world. There's nothing flowery about this text. Every day, every day as God looks out over the world and sees your sin and mine, as he sees war and racism and greed, murder and the oppression of the poor, corruption and the abuse of justice, sex slavery and the trafficking of children. How is it possible that God should have even a shred of love left for this world? I tell you, a God who sees the world as it truly is and feels love must either be fictitious, delusional, or really and truly benevolent. And you are left to make your choice. If he's fictitious, then you are left to the darkness. If he is delusional, then he cannot save you. If, however, he is benevolent, then men and women, you have found in the gospel a true lover of your soul. Because the truth is that the worst, most horrific sinner is somehow, somehow not out of the reach of God's love. That's what this text is saying. Do you understand? Some of you this morning feel like you're beyond the reach of God's love, that what you've done is too bad or too horrible to ever forgive. I want you to hear clearly that God loves you and he wants to forgive you. Just come to him. Others of you this morning feel like you're generally a good person, not like the people I've described. And so you must, because of your goodness, deserve God's love. I want you to hear clearly from this passage that you don't. This passage beautifully challenges both kinds of people, whether you think you're too good for God or not good enough for Him. And you may not think of yourself as particularly evil, but this text says that you and I have a disposition towards the darkness just like the worst of sinners. You are no different. There are no shades of darkness in a pitch black world. John wants us here to ask, how great, how great must the love of God be that he should love a world like this? Because the great irony of this passage is this very awkward relationship that John bookmarks at the beginning and end of our text. It is the presence of two great loves in verses 16 and 19. It is this, that God loved the world, but the world loved darkness. God loved a world that didn't love him in return. And God loved not just the world, but every person in it. God loved you, not in some general macro sense, but in the most personal way possible. He saw you in the midst of all your sin and shame and all your suffering, whatever you've done, and he loved you. He loved you. And he loves you now, even as you run from him, even as you hide from him, even as you continue to love the darkness of your sin. Jesus wants you to know the great love that God has for you and the world. This is his first point. Secondly, though, Jesus tells us here what God gave. You see, it's not enough for you to love something, right? We know this. True love must always be accompanied by actions, and this is precisely what we find in our passage. Jesus says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, And it's here that Jesus begins interpreting for Nicodemus what he has come to do. There's a plan of salvation unfolding, and Jesus, the Son of God, has a big part to play. 
Now, remember, this entire passage is taking place in the midst of a conversation. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he wants to talk about eternal life. He wants to know how a person can be saved. He's asking, what must a person do? And Jesus essentially says to him, no, no, step back a second. I want to tell you what God must do. Have you ever noticed that in the passage? It's not so odd. I think we're so used to hearing this text that we haven't thought about it in context. It feels like Jesus is on a side quest. He's not answering the original question. Nicodemus wants to know how to be saved, and Jesus wants to talk about who's doing the saving. Let me ask you, what is the gospel actually about? Because the focus of this passage is not actually about you. It's not. God is the central character of this text. He loves the world. He gave his son. He sent Jesus. He is the light. Whoever believes in him. You and I are simply not the main characters of this story. And this is so important because the way we've been conditioned to think about this passage makes it seem like me and my decision to follow Jesus is at the heart of this text. I need to tell you that your decision to follow Jesus is not more important than Jesus himself. This text is not primarily about what a person should do, and if you read it that way, you will make the same mistake as Nicodemus. Rather, the focus of this passage is on what God has done. What God has done. Let me say, I think the reason most of us have grown tired of this verse is because we don't read it correctly. Most of us have functionally decided whether we admit it or not that if I have already trusted in Jesus, there's nothing new for me to gain from this passage. You have categorically put this text in a bucket meant for unbelievers, and I think that's why your gospel feels stale. This passage is about what God loved and what God gave. Do you understand? At the center of this text is a decision, yes, but it's not your decision. It is God's. The emphasis of this passage is not on the decision that you have to make to become a Christian. It is about the decision that God made to love you. You. I think we're so focused on asking, what does the gospel mean for me, that we've stopped asking, what does the gospel mean at all? Perhaps, like Nicodemus, we may find that we've been asking the wrong question. You see, the point of this text is not what a person should do for salvation, but what God has done for salvation. God gave his only son. And Jesus here tells us why he did this. He says in verse 16 that God gave his only son so that the world should not perish but have eternal life. Despite the state of the world and its animosity towards God, he chooses to send Jesus, his only son. If you're here and you're not not a Christian, you're probably wondering, what kind of a father does that? I mean, really. Like if the world is really as crappy, cruel, and dark as you say, why take your only son and put him there? I think that's a great question. I know some of you here have a difficult relationship with your father. And when you hear a verse like this, it sounds like abandonment. You may be wondering if the God of Christianity is like this, why would I want any part of this? I think there are two possible answers to your question. 
Either God is cruel and unjust and he must not love his son, or he is loving and good as I have described, but his son is what the world actually really needed. The Bible says that the second is true, and all the verses we've been reading in our Advent series so far tell us that this was the only way. In fact, it was the joy of the Son to do this for the world that he loved. I want you to hear these words from the mouth of the Son himself. Jesus says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What God did in sending his son was necessary for the salvation of the world. He was sent not to condemn, but to save. I think oftentimes in our culture, we have this caricature of the Christian God who is just angry at sin and is waiting to bring the judgment. This passage says quite the opposite. If condemnation was what he wanted, he should have just left us in the dark. But he didn't do that. The son's very name, Jesus, means God saves, not God condemns. And this is precisely what the gospel is all about. You see, there was nothing the world could do to fix its darkness. We were estranged from God and alienated from his love. And rather than God coming to condemn us, he made the incredible decision to come and save us. This is what the gospel is all about. And listen, I know that if you attend this church, you hear that message every week, but I want it to sink into your soul. It has been said by some at this church that the preaching here is only really for the skeptic or the new Christian, and that the gospel preached that this church is too basic. That saddens me. It does. Grace Toronto, I must tell you that there's only one gospel, and if it's too basic for you, is it possible that maybe you have missed the point entirely? Nicodemus was a mature believer. Jesus called him Israel's teacher. If the Lord thought these words sufficient enough for his hearing, how is it that these same words are too basic for you and I? Listen, God loved the world, and he gave his son for the world. If you find that the gospel you are hearing is old news and not good news, may I suggest that it may not be an issue with the preacher. If you are unimpressed with the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you don't need different preaching. You need different perspective. Ask God for that. I want that for you. I want that for me too. Because I get it. I looked at the same passage and I wanted to preach something else. Give me something different, something more complex, something for the mature. Everyone knows this passage. What new or profound thing could I add to it by preaching? I was a fool. I realized that the good news of the gospel had over time become old news in my heart. I believed the lie the good news of the gospel wasn't good enough. And if you're here like me as a quote-unquote mature believer, I need to ask you, have you found yourself believing the same? I think God wants to change that in us both. I do. Because here's the beauty of the gospel. A world was on fire and people were perishing. Life, eternal life was at stake, not just for 42 million people, but for every person who has ever lived. 
The question God's people wanted to know was this, would God actually save the world? Will he do what he promised? Would he give what he said he would? My friends, in Jesus, God made good on that promise. Our sin and darkness had so separated us from God that someone had to bridge that gap. Salvation had a heavy cost, and it cost more than $6 billion. Men and women, I want you to realize that we have before us a loving, self-giving God who was on a mission to save the world. God didn't give you 2% of his net worth. He gave you his son. Christ didn't give you a handout. He gave you his very life. You see, Jesus entered into all the darkness and suffering of our world, knowing full well what it would cost. John, writing early in his gospel, says this about the sun. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Do you see? The one who came not to condemn was condemned by the very people he came to save. And yet in doing so, God's plan was actually fulfilled. Because at the cross, Jesus received the full punishment that you and I deserve for our sin, and we receive his righteousness, holiness, and eternal life when we turn to him, repent of our sins, and believe. You see, God kept his promise, and he saved the world that was doomed to perish. This is what we celebrate as we consider the miracle of Christmas. This is the good news. And wherever you find yourself this morning, I'm praying that you would grab a hold of your heart. Well, some implications. What does this text ask us to do? How are we to read this for ourselves personally? Well, I mentioned before that at the center of this text is a decision. And it's God's decision to come and save us from our sins. But this passage also presents each of us with a more personal decision. Jesus says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever does not believe is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would ask you to think about these words. This passage says that you and I want most to be loved. But what we're doing is groping around in the darkness, hoping to find it from lesser things. I want to tell you that in Jesus, God has loved you more than you can ever imagine. And no one, no parent or spouse or partner will ever love you like that. Jesus asks you to believe in him to find forgiveness of your sins. Would you do that? Would you do that? The world is dark, as my Somalian driver friend so vividly reminded me. Here is light for you to embrace. Now, if you're here and you're a professing Christian, I think this passage calls you to believe also more deeply, more thoroughly, and more joyfully. You know, I think I instinctively, you and I instinctively want to know how to apply this text. What should we do? What should a person do? We are in familiar company, I think, with Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus wanting to know what he should do and how he could be more productive and effective in the faith. And in response, Jesus told him a story. It was a story of God's love that Christ believed would change him. I wonder, 
Is it possible that what you most need right now for the good of your faith isn't to go pray more, read more, or do more, but to instead have your heart warmed by a story? I think this is a powerful, powerful story of love. And if it truly gets a hold of your heart, it will do more good than any trivial application I could give you this morning. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says this, for you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, he says, walk as children of light. Paul gets this. He gets this story. When you know the love story you are part of, as you consider it, abide in it, and rejoice in it, I think God will enable you to live the Christian life more powerfully and more effectively than you ever thought possible. If you don't believe me, just look at the text in front of you. It is a description of what a life could look like when it's transformed by God's love. Verse 16, he will love the world as God loves it and he will seek its flourishing. Verse 17, you will love people who are perishing and you will want to tell them the good news. Verse 18, you will love the son and you will endeavor to live all of life in his name. Verse 19, you will love the light more than the darkness and the satisfaction of your sin. Do you understand? This story is meant to change you and give you a heart for the things that God loves. Spend some time reflecting on this story. May the Spirit help you to live the Christian life. Men and women, I am praying that God would give you the power to live as though you are loved. Because this is the beautiful message of Christmas, that God loved the world and that God gave his son. And whether you've heard that for the first time this morning or countless times before, I am praying that we would be a message that you find yourself falling in love with again and again and again for the good of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. We thank you for how much you love this world, this dark world, and for sending your son. God, we pray that we would cherish this story in our hearts, that it would be good news and not old news and that you would enable us to live out of the power of your spirit more effectively and efficiently than we have ever lived before. We pray that we would love you with all our hearts and serve you with our lives. In the name of Jesus.